Right-wing Christian zealot and homosexuality enthusiast Paul Cameron, welcome to The Herd Mentality. Thanks for your time. I have sold out. Well, that's what they all say when they come on this show. So firstly, let's discuss your credentials. You are... An activist homosexual. Really? And you're friends with Gordon Klingenschmidt? Himself, a homosexual. I'm not quite sure either of those are the case. You may have been edited against your will. Um, Now, I wanted to have you on to discuss this whole gayness disease and how it's transmitted. Apparently, it can be passed from person to person like the Ebola virus. Homosexuals, from the get-go, as long as we have recorded history, have used the molestation of boys as a way to recruit to homosexuality. Apart from your unsubstantiated claim being utter nonsense, I'm wondering if there's a parallel to be drawn there to the Catholic Church. Approximately 50 or so percent of the boys whose first sexual experience was homosexual in adulthood engaged in homosexuality. How did you determine these statistics? In our study, based on a random sample, we found that it didn't make any difference whether the boy was raped or whether it was consensual. That is, if it was with a peer or raped by a man. Did you do any of the research yourself firsthand? A furtive visitor to uh, restrooms and that sort of thing. Hmm. What conclusions were you able to reach? So this is a tremendous recruitment uh, tool. If a gay can get to your son first. Now, Paul, there seems to be something of a fixation on the topic here. I'm told that Ray Comfort has an 8-horsepower solid gold butt plug for research purposes. Have you discussed borrowing the device for a weekend to do a study on stress relief? Um, I can't say. Paul Cameron, thanks for your time. It's very important to keep your sons from having a homosexual experience. So the Daily Mail published a story. Oh, and of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> of course. Could living near a wind farm make you dead? No. <laughs> Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection and, God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Down the line with me, I have the two best-looking renewable energy experts on the market right now. They're hot stuff. And I have <laughs> at Katan J Zero. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. Thank you for the very nice compliment. <laughs> and where are you calling in from? I'm calling from Sydney. I've heard of that. Mm. Very well. And Imtiaz Shams. So that's at Imti Shams, I-M-T-I S-H-A-M-S. How are you? Hi there, Adam. Very good. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, last time you were on, you were discussing the Ex-Muslims Forum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got a brief update for us on that? It's not quite the forum. It's more like a community, I guess. We went to the Sunday Assembly. Do you know what that is? Yes. So we went to that and it was freaking awesome. It was quite it was quite a lot of fun. So we're making that like a monthly thing now. Excellent. Now, gentlemen, we'll start with you, Katan. What's your specialty? At the moment, I work as a communications and research officer in the renewable energy industry. So basically, my specialty is communication and investigation and research. Very well. You came to my attention via a post you did that has a whole bunch of wonderful charts and graphs and important looking things to overcome some of the objections that the average Joe out there has about renewables. Yeah, that was a presentation for uh, UNSW. Uh, They had a symposium on renewable energy one day. 
mm-hmm. and it was really, really good. That presentation was aimed at considering some newer and more interesting ways to communicate, considering the fact that a lot of the protestations around renewable energy aren't necessarily about the science per se. They really are. Mm. The louder the noise that comes from those objecting is proportionate to their knowledge on the Uh, the topic. Yeah, I I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, There's certainly an inverse relationship there. (laughs) Because people, you know, it's true that that they do kind of make up for deliberative sort of calm reasoning with just sheer volume. So on the topic of wind farms, I mean, it's commonly uh, thrown out there for the public to consume that wind farms are bad because Mm -hmm. they kill wildlife, but they also cause distress in humans, cattle, you know, whatever happens to be walking nearby them in terms of Mm. low frequencies or mysterious unmeasurable radiation and, and people report higher instances of illness once a wind farm is constructed near their residence. Yeah, so this whole issue is actually why I went into communications in the first place. I actually started out in the wind industry as a data analyst. So we set up a monitoring room for wind farms and I discovered this issue and no one really seemed to be looking into it, into into the sort of the real nature of this whole thing. Uh, So I did a bit of digging and you know, I have a I have a background when I was growing up. I was really into skepticism and obviously atheism was a big thing for me as well. And it equipped me to deal with scientifically contentious issues. And it also taught me to recognize warning signs. And when I started reading into this wind turbine syndrome thing, all of those warning signs were there to suggest that it's kind of a pseudoscience. It, it is a pseudoscience. Hmm. And Not it's, really scientific. It's geographically related in that it's mm. a syndrome that, inverted commas, exists in Australia, yet doesn't yeah. exist in, say, places like China. Yeah, look, it, it sort of manifests to very, very different degrees. So if you dig hard enough, you, you can actually find evidence of people in China and Germany and Denmark who've expressed concerns, but it's nowhere near the same level as you get in Australia, America, Canada, and uh, the UK. Which is interesting, given that Germany has a much higher proportion of wind farms than we do here. Yeah, it's, it's completely unrelated to the number of wind farms or the, or the proximity of wind farms to communities. It, it tends to follow language, basically. And Imtiaz, your specialty is more... Yeah, welcome back to the show. Your <laughs> specialty is more along the lines of solar. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm the director of business development for a solar technology company. Solar is nice in the UK, but obviously it's not as sunny here as it is in places like Portugal. Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of negative public reactions do you encounter? I think with solar, it's quite an interesting one because generally I don't seem to see the same kind of issues with solar, at least photovoltaic panels, as we do with wind. However, when it comes to the mirror-based systems where you're concentrating light, that's when the birds come in and that's where, you know, like frying the birds, for example, in Nevampa in, uh, in, I think, California. They've had issues mm-hmm. where they're f- basically frying birds. So, but the people are sort of taking that and blowing that, I guess, out of proportion somewhat. So what exactly and is the, that technology, just for the listeners? So what, what they're doing is they've got uh, a bunch of mirror systems. They're called heliostats, and that concentrates light onto a central tower. And at that point, you know, you can have anywhere between, let's say, 500 times to 1,000 times concentration, depending on the system. So it does get very hot there. And what's happening is that birds flying through these beams of light can get fried. And that does happen for sure. 
but um, it's being used to kind of attack any concentrating system, like, a, you know, that kind of system, as well as solar in general, mm. at least in the US. Would it not be beneficial then to open a KFC nearby and sort of make good of the situation? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I completely agree with that. So how are you overcoming these objections? To be fair, that specific problem is sort of a problem, which is, and, and but a lot of these, these CSP companies, they're called the concentrating solar thermal, uh, what they're doing is that they're decreasing the size of the mirror areas and decreasing concentration so that they're not frying the birds. That also has an advantage where you use less land anyway. And that's what our company does as well. We have very small mirror systems rather than the larger ones that we used to have back five years ago. That really eliminates that problem. The problem is though, even though that you, you solve the problem, it doesn't take away that narrative that, oh, you're killing the birds. It's a tricky mm. one, isn't it? See, I would think there's also the knock-on effect in terms of it's easier to manufacture a lot of small mirrors than several larger ones. That's exactly what we pitch in our cost curves for the business plan, actually. <laughs> what you're getting now is that with things like additive manufacturing and, and, and you know, but just better automation, you're getting a real significant ability to manufacture small parts, but uh, get the economies of scale you normally get with large orders. So you can just keep manufacturing very small mirror systems and scale the system down significantly without getting this kind of U-shirt cost curve, which you usually get, where if you get too big, you're expensive. If you're too small, you're expensive. So we're driving that U-shirt down to flatten it out because of uh, manufacturing. And it's, it's having a big impact in the solar industry, especially in concentration, concentrating solar. What sort of power output can you generate from these systems? Okay, so it depends on what system you use. Our technology is slightly different. So companies like eSolar and BrightSource, what they do is that they have a small, let's say, gas turbine at the top of the tower, and they, they get 30% efficiencies, a bit less than that, actually, because what they're taking is they're taking the thermal energy and converting that into electrical energy, and there's a certain efficiency drop there, naturally, because of, of the way that um, physics because, works. Yeah, because that, Newton tells us so. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. In our case, we do something slightly different where we put a multi-junction cell on top of the tower. And a multi-junction cell is like a very expensive but very high efficient cell. So the current record for multi-junction technology is 44.7%. Wow. So you can imagine it's, it's quite a bit better. Now, our company is very good at not just doing that, taking the heat away. Because that's the problem. Because imagine you're concentrating all that light onto a multi-junction cell. It's going to get very hot right? Mm -hmm. We have a slightly different approach. We have electrical output from the cell, but the heat we try to co-locate with industrial users. So you situate these solar plants nearby local manufacturing, for example, so that you can channel. How would you transfer that heat? Via water? Uh, yeah, you can use water, like a glycol solution. There's many, many different ways to move heat. heat moving heat is a solved problem. So we, we, we like to go with solved problems and just bring them together. And what do they use the heat for? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I get approached from uh, Pakistani textile manufacturers quite a lot, and it's because they need a certain temperature of heat for the textile manufacturing operations, as well as electricity. So they really like our technology because they've got an electric problem and a thermal problem, and right now they're solving that by using uh, what they call combined heat and power diesel generators. So they're burning diesel, basically. Mm. And Pakistan doesn't... I don't know if you know, but Pakistan doesn't have a natural diesel source. <laughs> so... Um, Oh, well, it's not just diesel, it's just vol volatile fuels. Mm -hmm. So for them, something like our system is perfect because they'll co-locate that with their textile industrial kind of areas. 
and we'll provide them with electricity and heat. It's useful given that solar happens generally during the times of day that people are wanting to work. But with solar, one of the issues is that it's it's difficult to store energy. Yeah. That you've gathered. Yeah. How can it be used to cover the growing energy demands overnight, for example? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Now, we, what we do is thermal is a lot easier to store than electricity. Uh, thermal energy is easier to store than electricity. So you can, you know, for example, you can store it in, uh, in, uh, they normally use salts, but that's a bit corrosive. So if you use things like concrete, concrete has a very good store of thermal energy. So is water, for example. I mean, the thermal aspect is relatively easy to solve. The electricity is a bit more difficult. And one of the things that we've been looking at is not using solar as the only source of power. So for example, pairing it with biogas or bio pellets or, or pellets, for example. So, if you can have, you know, some sort of gas system, like a biogas or pellet system, that can cover you during the night times, but solar will cover you during the day. I notice you haven't mentioned wind here, Katan. Is this something that you might be able to pick up and fill the <laughs> actually, gap with? Actually, you, no, you're right. I, I've missed that, but you're right. I mean, we were looking at base stations and we were looking at a solar PV slash wind combination because wind's profile is quite good in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't hit exactly the same spots as solar. They do work well together. And, and you know, s- storage is also an issue for large-scale wind energy, perhaps even a bigger issue, just because the number of megawatts that you have to store is, is much larger. And you can predict wind speeds a few days in advance, but even then, you still can't necessarily train that to how people are using electricity. Yeah, it's still an issue. There are some new turbines going up at a wind farm called Boko Rock Wind Farm in New South Wales, where they actually have batteries built into them, which is pretty cool. And then it smooths out the generation profile to a small degree. It's really nice. I I think those, hopefully that technology starts to mature in the next few years. But the issue that you've got with wind as well is moving parts. They require Mm. service and they're expensive to do. What's being done to overcome this? I suppose it's just a matter of making the servicing better. So you do preemptive servicing. So you collect data from the turbine. And once you have that data, you can just run algorithms on it and go, okay, well, this turbine's about to fail. So we should check the gearbox or, you know, check the yaw system or something like that. Yeah, look, I mean, of course, I would say this, but I say it mostly comes down to data, like good data (laughs) collection and high quality analysis. It's kind of what I used to do before I got into communications and community engagement stuff in the wind industry. If I can add to that, in terms of dealing with servicing for moving parts, we've been doing that for decades or centuries with uh, <laughs> automobiles. So we've kind of gotten quite good at you know, getting the tolerances right so things don't mess up so much. How, but one, one thing I have been thinking about is with all these sea wind turbines, these sort of offshore ones, it is harder to go and, you know, just go out and fly out and fix things. So you've got to make sure that things are working right from the get-go and will work for 20 years. Yeah, people people actually often don't think about that. You know, people often come up to me and say, well, Katan, why don't we just build uh, wind turbines offshore in Australia? I mean, it would just it would stop all the people complaining. There wouldn't be, you know, any visual impacts. But they forget how expensive it is to get into a boat, go out to a wind turbine, change a gearbox and come back. There was a, a model I saw in China, I think it was, where they actually have living quarters, like basic living quarters inside the <laughs> inside the nacelle. <laughs> That's one way to do it, I guess. A terrible, terrible place to live, like... <laughs> The fishing would be good. Yeah, it would. But, you know, it's like, it's really, like, it's it's small. It's sort of the size of, like, a cupboard. I'm not sure it's really so, worth it. So you get to sleep like Lurch in the Adams Family, just standing up in the closet. <laughs> yeah. 
What sort of power yeah. output are you generating in terms of efficiency? From the wind turbines? Hmm. Um, in terms of efficiency, there's a few ways of looking at it. So basically, you're converting a certain quantity of kinetic energy that's stored in the movement of the atmosphere into electrical power. And that percentage is how I would think about efficiency uh, in terms of percentages. I mean, there's a theoretical limit to how much power you can extract from the wind anyway called Betz's limit. Oh, off the top of my head, I think it's uh, the average wind turbine is... I haven't looked at this stuff for a while, but it's I think it's between 30 and 35%, which is not too bad. Mm. Uh, out of all the potential energy stored in, you know, you sort of take like a snapshot of like a slice of atmospheric movement and go, okay, well, how much how much energy is in that? When you actually ask the average punter like what they think about when they when they think about efficiency in wind turbines, what they're really talking about is how often it generates and how much power it generates. So technically not efficiency, but you might hear people say, oh, wind turbines only generate thirty percent of the time, or Oh, wind turbines only operate at 30% efficiency. What they're talking about is actually capacity factor. So you install yeah. a wind turbine and it's got, say, three megawatts of total installed capacity. But because wind speed varies over time, you basically need to install a, you need to install a capacity that is the maximum, that will capture the maximum wind speed not the average wind speed. Is, is that part of the reason why there are three blades on a turbine and not more? Yeah. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. So, um, that's just the optimal configuration. They tried two-bladed, they tried four and five, and it just, just didn't work quite as well. Did they try 37? <laughs> I don't think so. Mm. I'll send an yep. open email Back to, to the, the drawing board people. Go <laughs> hey. start again. You do get those, um, those vertical turbines, don't you, which have mm. um, sort of blades that are really facing sort of upwards. Yep. And, so those are uh, yeah, yeah vertical axis winter. The the ones I'm talking about, the three bladed ones, are horizontal axis wind turbines, and the vertical ones are vertical axis wind turbines. And this amuses me to no end. But the horizontal axis ones, the acronym is HORT, H A W T. So you can say stuff like, "Oh, that's HORT." Uh, and <laughs> I know it's wind industry joke. Wind industry humor is is notoriously bad. That's uh, so we've discovered. You guys have the best parties, don't you? We, yeah, we do have good parties. <laughs> we make up for a shitty sense of humour. With climate change becoming more and more of a hot topic, as it were, <laughs> can I join the club now after that one? <laughs> then in the States, I understand there was a study done that demonstrated that having wind turbines along a coastline lessened or could dissipate the impact of a tornado coming onto land. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I am. It's a good study. I mean, uh, it, it's modelling and it features this ridiculously large hypothetical wind farm. In reality, you probably wouldn't really build, build a wind farm that, quite that big. Uh, or if you did, you'd have a lot of uh, disposable income. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense if you if you have a lot of things in the way of the movement of wind, you, you would remove a larger amount of energy from the movement of the atmosphere. Obviously, wind turbines don't go very high relative to high, how high a tornado or a hurricane might be, but it still makes a difference because it's it's the same as, as say, having a flat bit of land versus a bit of land with forest on it. It just kind of creates friction, and then the atmosphere slows down because there's stuff on the ground. How do these energies compare now to things like nuclear, which is actually quite safe and reliable? Hmm. It's a pretty interesting debate in Australia, at least. Nuclear, uh, as you say, is safe and reliable, but it has 
community and economic and political issues in Australia. <laughs> Just like the renewables then. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I know. It's to differing degrees, you know. I think the energy mix will shift a lot in the future. In, in 30 years, it's going to look quite different. But at the moment, there's a lot of things that need to be overcome if we kind of want to have a really diverse energy mix. Hmm. that makes sense? Yeah, you know? well, it's, it's important to have our, our sources of energy brought in from multiple sources in case mm. one becomes prohibitively expensive. You know, you, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. But Imtiaz, mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, speaking about nuclear, in the UK, we've got, I think, one-sixth of our energies is nuclear. There were quite a few permits being given out to build new plants, but people have actually pulled out. I think E.ON pulled out, RWE pulled out, Empower pulled out. So there's been pretty big shift recently, and part of it is to do with public consultations. Now, I don't, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in the sense that we are then focusing on coal, like Drax, for example, which is the biggest coal plant in the world. We're adding more coal power plants. Uh, sorry, we're, we're increasing the capacity of them. But it also forces smaller scale renewable projects to come online because the government realizes that, okay, if they've not got energy from nuclear, they're going to have to subsidize renewables one way or the other. And the other issue with nuclear is about capital investment. So you're going to have to get a very large amount of capital investment in the licensing processes, very, very long and arduous, etc. While with sort of renewables, as we're getting cheaper and cheaper, LCO, like levelized costs, private equity people, venture capitalists are willing to come in and project infrastructural financiers are coming in and funding these sort of projects as long as the financials look good. So there is a bit of offsetting going on. And so very, it's it's quite in flux, but I think people are realizing that coal is not going to work. I, I get a lot of people coming up to me on Twitter and just and just going and just saying thorium at me <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, expecting yeah, I, 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 I don't know what just repeating thorium and and my my response is always you have to advocate for your technology as fairly and honestly as you can, and me advocating for wind and solar as part of a grid doesn't mean that I'm advocating against every single other technology that exists. People have a lot of trouble understanding that. I'm not I'm not <laughs> against anything. I, I just I'm just for uh yeah. clean technology like solar and, and, and wind. If we go more organic than that, if you look at how ecosystems work, you have different plants operating at different parts of the spectrum in across the world. So there's a lot of specialization that happens in nature because there are just different methods of accessing different forms and types of energy at different locations. And I think to actually have a similar diverse system within our own infrastructure is not a weird thing. And to advocate for diversity is a really important thing because it protects us. I mean, you, d- you don't want to concentrate all your energy production because then you, you might risk things like what's happening in Japan. At the same time, you don't want to be too diverse because then you might ha- you'll run into transmission cost problems, for example. So you've got sort of a secular energy worldview there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What What are your thoughts on paying people to generate energy on their own homes and feed any excess back into the grid? How successful has this been in places where it's been implemented? I mean, in the UK, I can talk about the UK. We have a really weird system where. You get paid for what you're going to pay into the grid, but you don't actually have to put it into the grid. It it's sounds like the English thing to do. <laughs> That's yeah, a, it's a deal. Very strange thing. <laughs> it's a really strange thing. So people are getting paid, but they don't actually have to push it into the grid. I think I don't know why that is. I think it's to do with that 
we don't really have smart meters in the same way as in maybe some other countries. But whatever the reason is, it's it's completely ridiculous. One of the issues is that we don't have any real technologies that are really at a good LTE for people who are private homeowners. At, at the same time, I think it's very important because it does bring public. I don't know how you acceptance. say acceptance. They have a. Yeah, it's, there's a real perception there that renewables is something that we can have very soon or now. While if you concentrate all of renewable energy, people just don't access it. You know, like when you see wind turbines, you see them up. You see, wow, we're actually moving as a world. And that is really something important because the reason, for example, nuclear, nuclear might make sense. A lot of the issues people have with nuclear is partly irrational. Nuclear is an interesting one because there's different generations of nuclear reactors, and uh, we heard the word thorium used before, but they've become more and more safe to the point that they don't even need any human intervention in the case of a catastrophic failure. They'll actually shut down themselves. So what's the go on that, Katan? Most of my reading on on nuclear has actually been in the context of risk perception. So I don't really know enough about the functioning of modern nuclear reactors. I mean, I I sort of accept what you're saying. And that's what I've read as well, is that largely they tend to operate safely. And, and, you know, there's there's plants in France and um, Germany and and London that seem to putter along quite nicely. The question I'm interested in is how human beings around them react to them. And people gauge risks in pretty fascinating ways. The, The very first example I read about in risk perception was someone driving to the construction of a nuclear facility to protest it. And they're in a car and they're speeding and they're having a cigarette on the way. Um, <laughs> and burning fossil fuels all the while. <laughs> yeah. On the way to the, on the way, on the way to protest this new technology being constructed near, near their community. Hmm. And I mean, it's a, it's a comical sort of scenario and it seems a bit like, oh, you know, we, uh, my first reaction was, oh, what a hypocrite. You know, that's, that's really silly. But when you dig into this sort of stuff a lot more, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like this is just generally how, how people work. It's not it's not ignorance or stupidity. It's um it's how people tend to react to these things. So yeah, look, I can't really I can't really answer your question around um, <laughs> safety, but I, I I do know that there's been a lot of literature written about risk perception in, in nuclear energy. I mean, it, it's surprisingly a lot of it's relevant to all uh, new generation technology, uh, so large scale solar and, and wind included. Any thoughts, MTS? I want to talk a little bit about cost in re- between uh, nuclear and solar and these kind of things. First of all, it's it's kind of hard to compare as well because nuclear is base load, while solar and wind tends to be much more intermittent. But solar is right now, I think, about double uh, the levelized cost. Yeah, I, I just think that, that while the cost curves are quite good for that, yeah, we can't we can't be thinking about uh, nuclear irrationally, but people do. Nuclear initially, the first generations were sort of a lot riskier. I completely agree with you that the generations we have now are much safer. In fact, I think nuclear is the safest energy form in terms of actual like human deaths. Like coal plants kill way more people. Same with gas plants, for example. I think I even read somewhere that if you take the Fukushima disaster and ignore sort of obviously radioactivity, the amount of people that would have been killed if Japan was powered with the same, uh, with the number of coal plants, for example, and gas would have been much higher than the fallout from Fukushima. Not to trivialize it, but that's sort of, if you look at it, it's quite an interesting statistic Mm. because we don't, we don't see the opportunity cost of going Mm. nuclear. What happens if we had gone coal? Because that's the only alternative we had at the time. I read it described once as coal is a successful killer because it kills slowly. Uh, yes. And that's, you know, in, in risk perception theory, that that's absolutely true. Coal really is quite a, 
horrible fuel and I think it's pretty urgent that we kind of just stop using it. And if nuclear can be part of that mix successfully, then that's great. In my view, it has some social and community issues to overcome before it can successfully start doing that. But we should be heartened by the fact that the costs on solar and wind are coming down dramatically and have done over the last decades. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just insane. It's just the drop has just been insane. You know, it's gotten to the point where today in this world, there are places on Earth where it's cheaper to have renewables, uh, solar and wind than getting electricity from the grid. That's a real uh, proof that we are heading towards a world where uh, renewables will become sort of common, I guess, or, or, or even the base load hmm. at some point. I keep using Germany as an example because I saw a meme as to how reliable those are. I'm I'm dubious. But the meme stated something along the lines of, congratulations, Germany, over 50% of your energy this month was generated via renewables. Mm. I'm pretty sceptical about those things. I mean, I, I, I think I've seen that one too. What happens a lot with those memes is people sometimes get a bit mixed up between instantaneous measures of power and long-term measures of energy. So, you know, there are times when the renewable energy in Germany is is producing a pretty fair percentage of the total consumption of the country. I mean, and, you know, they do consume a lot of power. But when you measure it over a longer time period, you have to use energy. Uh, so you would use megawatt hours or gigawatt hours or whatever. And I think if I remember correctly, that particular meme might have mixed those two up. I'd need to look it up. Uh, it doesn't sound like something somebody on the internet would do, though, making <laughs> mistake <laughs> what do research for me <laughs> <laughs> oh look it happens on both sides I, I would i would probably argue that it happens way more on the anti-renewable side but it still happens on the pro-renewable side as well and i try and i try and call it out wherever i can because it only damages our cause if, if someone's putting out, and it's very important you know, that stuff we, that it can we, be easily we, criticized yeah gentlemen i have one final question for you if Jesus were around today, what would his policy on renewable energy be? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, gosh, I, I think, I don't know. He doesn't seem like a technocrat to me. <laughs> doesn't seem like someone who'd be raving about the, the new Tesla D on, on Twitter. <laughs> he'd, he'd probably just say, don't use any energy. Ah, okay, that's a good point. And, uh, MTS? I, I, don't, I don't know. I kind of feel like, at least with my non-Christian background, I guess, my view of Jesus would be, you know, he's a bit of a hippie. He would be sort of like all about, I mean, you know, decentralized power. Isn't that sort of the, you know, <laughs> not needing to plug into an organized, like a, like not needing to plug into the, a country's grid infrastructure, just living off, you know, in the middle of nowhere with your various animals. That just sounds amazingly Jesus-like to me, based on just my background of my understanding of Jesus. Very well. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show and uh, lightening everybody's day. No problems. Or, or, or 1 a.m. the night for me. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you coming on the show. Take care, guys. Thanks. Hello, herd mentalists. Excuse me while I hijack your auditory nerve for a couple of seconds. I'm Jake Farwarden from the ImaginaryFriendsShow.com podcast, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting opportunity in Brisbane. On the 22nd of October, myself and Ross Balch from Skeptically Challenged Podcast will be putting on a live edition of our show. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of October, at 6pm at the Plough Inn, 
at South Bank in Brisbane, if I didn't mention that already. I'm pretty sure I did, but I'm going to mention again, just so that it's right stuck there in your amygdala. Yeah, I'm shoving it right into your amygdala. 22nd of October, Wednesday, 6pm, Plough in at South Bank in Brisbane. I'd love to see you there. Oh, and it's totally free. Godspeed. Joining me on the line, I have Sakura, who is at OP Atheist NZ. I was about to give you the whole opinionated atheist intro there. Sakura, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Whereabouts are you based? I am in Tauranga in New Zealand. Now, Sakura, you're here to spread the good word about a friend of yours or an acquaintance or or somebody who is in need. Talk me through it. Uh, His name is Dave. He's a member of the Facebook group that I run for Kiwi Atheists, which is the Opinionated Atheist NZ. So you can go on Facebook and look that up if you like. Mm -hmm. His wife, Carolyn, is fighting cancer in Wellington Hospital. And Dave himself has just been diagnosed with lung cancer. That was just confirmed in the last couple of days. So he just really needs a bit of help covering some of the costs associated with the health problems that him and his wife are having. For example, he lives in Taranaki, but the hospital where him and his wife have to be treated is in Wellington, and that's about a three or a four hour drive one way. So it's quite a big distance. So he has travel costs, he has accommodation costs for staying in Wellington, and bills, and because obviously he can't work now. With, it all adds up, doesn't it? And it's not it a does. huge amount. You've got a little campaign, a little fundraiser campaign on the boil, and the target's $500, New Zealand dollars. So yes. it's quite achievable, I think. I think so. I would be absolutely chuffed if it went over that, but $500 is a good goal to have, I think. So the medical costs are being covered by your wonderful first world medical system. Yes, yes, they are. So it's, yeah, just helping out. If we were to contribute a little, we'd go to givealittle.co, that's .co.nz, slash cause, slash biker bailout. What's the biker bit? Ah, Dave is a motorcycle enthusiast and uh, he loves riding, going for long road trips on his motorcycle, which is something he's not going to be able to do for a little while, I should imagine. But uh, I decided to use that, you know, a bit of a push. Give a little bit of context, yeah. So yeah. Have, have you ever met Dave? Not in person. I've spoken to him on the phone quite a number of times. And on Facebook, of course. So it's a case of just doing something for somebody who needs a hand. Mm. Hmm. I have also, I've offered to go down to um, either Wellington or Taranaki personally if he needs someone there to give him a little bit of extra help because at the moment I'm not working. I have all the time in the world, so I have offered to do that. But at this stage, he's um, happy for, he's managing without hmm. that. I think it's quite achievable. I'll I'll go to the herd mentality coffers and see what I can get I out. Have, I think we'll send fifty dollars through to get the ball rolling because currently you're at one hundred and thirty dollars out of five hundred. So guys, right. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's quite achievable. I'd like to get this over and done with and help your friend Dave out. Thanks, Adam. Sakura, is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah, I'd just like to promote the Facebook page, really. Easy as that. I know that there are at least three people in New Zealand listening to this. (laughs) 
Yeah, Kai Masai and <laughs> there's another guy, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Ray Comfort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that man is such a fool. Uh, so where can we find said Facebook page? Uh, you can find it if you go to Facebook and type in the Opinionated Atheist NZ into the search bar and that should take you right there. There is another page on Facebook that's just the Opinionated Atheist, so you have to put the NZ on the end if you want to get to us. Very well. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks. Hi, Adam. I have been sick for months and I'm trying to catch up with my various podcasts after a brief distraction by Pagan Podcasts before I fell sick. I just listened to episode 71 and one lady mentioned the episode where discussion approaches were discussed with Mr. Oz Atheist. One of the many things I love about your show is you do not act as if you believe that religious folk are just a bunch of morons that need to be yelled at until they find reason and rationale. And people who use this approach wonder why theists think atheists are arrogant and angry. The one way to alienate people and have them reject you before they hear your message is to treat them like lesser people and to point blank insult them. It is much easier to speak to them as you would a friend and have a discussion as equals. Ranty atheist podcasts that are directed at atheists are not an issue though. I also wanted to say massive kudos to the lengths you go to in order to help people. Truly admirable. Thanks. Donna Down Under. There was a cool story yesterday that might interest you, both of you, about wind turbines making people deaf. Did you see that in the news at all, guys? I heard something. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. So the Daily Mail published a story. Oh, God. And of the- course they did. Of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> and the Telegraph published it too. And the, the headline is, could living near a wind farm make you deaf? Um, <laughs> The actual study isn't that bad. This, like, poor researcher, he doesn't mention wind turbines at all, and it looks at low-frequency noise, so so 30 hertz. The person who wrote the press release for the university about the thing just threw wind turbines in amongst a list of things that can generate low-frequency noise, and they can, but it's really, really at a really low level, like way lower than the, what they used for their study. And all of these media outlets just went bonkers because they were like, wind turbines cause deafness, and, you know, the actual researcher had to come out and just be like... Well, there's, there's a point no. there that, that it becomes uh, imperceptible to the ear, and you actually feel it. Yeah, it has to be really loud, though. Like, mm. so, so basically, like, the example the researcher uses is a good one. Like, he talks about if you're in a car and you roll down the window and it does that buffeting noise, mm-hmm. that's actually oh, infrasound and low frequency. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. annoying, right? Like, but you kind of, you, you hear it, but you also kind of feel it to some degree. That's infrasound and low frequency noise, but just at a really high amplitude. So basically, the lower the frequency gets, the higher the amplitude has to be for you to perceive it, and whether it's physically or, or through your ear. Yeah, and, and and so when they did their experiment, it was like super loud, and, and uh, wind turbines just don't generate anywhere near that that amplitude. And it was just such a like beautiful example of like what you said earlier about doesn't really matter what the truth is; it just becomes this thing, this like reputation, mm-hmm. and people just. Uh, just we'll just bring it up every single time. Well, there's a, throw, um, there's a throwback to the Nazi era, didn't they? Experiment yeah. using low frequencies on prisoners of war to turn oh, their bowels to water and so to forth. make them yeah to, to turn them crazy, no, or to make them angry. 
Yeah, look, I, I've been meaning to do like a little project of collating all of the times that's mentioned in like <laughs> uh, the process of developing a wind farm because like it, it seems a bit abstract, but you got to build a wind turbine and all of a sudden there's just like people talking about Nazis <laughs> and <laughs> torture and... And all these poor wind developers just like, what the hell is going on here? Why are people talking about Nazis? Well, there's another reference for you. You can chalk that one up. Just chalk that down. Heard mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2074, communicating to you using Liam Neeson's mobile telephone. I remember back in 2014... Seeing the photos posted online by Iman, or at one godless woman, of her trip to Legoland. It's really very exciting, and I'm sure I speak for all of the herd mentalists when I say we're very happy for you, Iman. Now, people who were recently supporting the show via PayPal, given the recent irregularity of episodes, I cannot in good conscience continue charging you if the shows aren't being released weekly. Therefore, I am cancelling all PayPal payments to the show with immediate effect and sending you an an electronic mail from the future to ask that you kindly change your support to patreon.com slash herdmentality, just like Robert, Kitty Mayhem, Matthew, Michael, Julian, Mel, Jerry and Pete have done this episode. This way... You only pay when an episode is released. I think it's the fairest thing to do. But don't feel like you're being ripped off. 10% of the proceeds from the show are going to help women in developing countries to further their education. This episode, we're loaning to Tong Bu from Vietnam to cover her tuition costs for her children. We also sent $50 to help an atheist in need in New Zealand or or wherever that is. Now, if you're interested, there's a herd mentality lending team that you're able to join at kiva.org. Come and join Jason, Frankie, Benjamin, Michael, Carl, and Paul by visiting kiva.org slash team slash the underscore herd underscore mentality. The link is in the show notes. We are changing the world one loan at a time. Now, I must run. Liam is very angry that I've taken his telephone. Goodbye. Fighting crime. Protecting the innocent. Orally funded, but equipped with critical thinking. He is the champion of reason. In the highlands of Scotland, there is a lake approximately 36 kilometers long and two and a half kilometers wide. Although it is not the largest lake in Scotland in surface area, it is, in terms of volume, bigger than all of the other lakes Scotland, England and Wales have combined. This very deep lake, Loch Ness, is believed by many to be the home of a monster, the Loch Ness Monster, sometimes called Nessie. The champion of reason had invited me to join him for a fact-finding expedition that would include making dives into the deep, dark lake. 
Along for the ride and for the diets was Brian Dunning, a Loch Ness monster researcher who seemed to be the perfect man to carry our heavy diving gear bags. We were all staying at the Knock Less Monster Inn and Suites, located just a couple of kilometres west of Loch Ness in the village of Inverdeen, which survived and thrived on tourism. It was our first day in Inverdeen, and we were having dinner at the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill, where the walls were covered with photos of what many believed to be the Loch Ness Monster. Most of the photos were simply different sizes of the same two old photos, the so-called Surgeon's Photo and the so-called Flipper Photo, both of which had been admitted as hoaxes. At the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill, it was all baloney. That is to say, they specialised in baloney. Everything on the menu had baloney in it, in one form or another. Brian ordered the baloney Florentine, I ordered the barbecued baloney, and the Champion of Reason ordered baloney and chips. Argentum, seated on a chair at our table, was not eating. But like us, he was drinking beer, Loch Ness Monster Stout, although, unlike us, he was drinking it from a bucket. The champ petted his trusty steed. You seem to like that beer, Argentum. Just remember, one bucket is your limit. You can't handle it like you used to. Brian had thrown his back out while carrying our gear and was bent over at almost a 90-degree angle. His head was on the table and turned sideways. The only way he could drink beer was to put it on his thigh and drink through a straw. Making matters worse, he had a bad case of the hiccups. I was surreptitiously playing around with the little remote-controlled fairy left for me by the champ the night I met him in Lockwood Forest. I had it zipping around, here and there in the place, making some people believe that it was a real fairy, until I lost control of it, and it splashed into a guy's glass of scotch whiskey. The guy, who was wearing a kilt, was so startled that he fell off his chair and landed on the floor with his kilt up embarrassingly and shockingly high. Along with the beer, we were all drinking a lot of water. Our first scheduled dive was set for the following day, so we wanted to make sure we didn't get dehydrated. The mayor of Inverdeen, Mythena McSham, who owned the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill, the Knock Less Monster Inn and Suites, and just about everything else in town, or so it seemed, was going to personally take us out for the dives on her yacht. Called the Chieftain because of the clout she wielded in the touristy town of Inverdeen, McSham happened to be at the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill that evening. Upon seeing us, she came over to our table. Overweight to the extent that she would have needed a double extra-large Nessie t-shirt at the Loch Ness Monster gift shop, which she also owned, the chieftain was wearing a wildly colourful jumpsuit and a huge hat that accentuated her obesity. Good evening, gentlemen, and a gentle stallion. How's the food? Fine, we all said, except Brian, who said, Fine. And Argentum, who of course said nothing. So tomorrow is the big day. We've come to <gasps> see for ourselves. And you shall. Perhaps you'll find proof of the truth. I personally think that Nessie is a plesiosaur. But <gasps> plesiosaurs have become extinct <gasps> 65 million years ago. Yes, but perhaps some of them survived and reproduced in the deep, mysterious Loch Ness. The Champion of Reason jumped in. To the conversation, that is. But the lake is only about 10,000 years old. For 20,000 years before that, it was ice, part of a glacier. Well, maybe the plesiosaurs froze and then unfroze and came back to life. You see, I've thought this through. Plesiosaurs could live to be about 250 years old. So we're talking about many generations of the giant marine reptile. I wouldn't be surprised if you find some remains down there. I decided to jump in to the conversation. 
Plesiosaurs had lungs, you know. They they would have had to resurface quite often. And if there are any of them in the lake... Well, maybe they're not fully-fledged plesiosaurs. Maybe they're a relative of the plesiosaur and have gills, enabling them to stay down there indefinitely. The champ shook his head. I can definitely see that you've thought this through. Anyway, we're looking forward to the dive tomorrow. We have come to see for ourselves. The chieftain tried to get the attention of one of the servers. Hey, yeah, you. Get your rear end over here. A meek, middle-aged busboy promptly came over and stood at attention. Downtrodden, with the chieftain's treadmarks all over him, his name was Kendrick. Kendrick, get these good people. And this good horse, a scoop of baloney ice cream. Oh, pass, we all said, except Brian, who said, Oh, pass. And Argentum, who of course said nothing. The chieftain dismissed Kendrick with a flip of her hand, prompting Kendrick to bow and leave. I'll pick you up tomorrow at eight o'clock sharp. According to the weather report, it's supposed to be a fine day for diving. And tomorrow evening, I would like to invite you to a dinner cruise on the loch. There will be live entertainment, featuring the fabulous Freddy Rodriguez and the Loch Ness Monsterettes. We have come to see for ourselves. Well, the forecast turned out to be right. The following day was indeed a good day for diving. The chieftain picked us up at Knockless Monster Inn and Suites at precisely eight o'clock in her vintage Bentley. Brian had recovered from the hiccups, but he was still bent over, so I put a knee to his lower back and pulled him back by the shoulders. Oh, thanks, I needed that. Good. Now you shouldn't have so much trouble carrying the gear to the trunk of the car and then out to the boat. Argentum trotted alongside the Bentley as the chieftain drove to Loch Ness, where her yacht, the Lying Scotsman, was moored. After boarding the Lying Scotsman, the chieftain drove the yacht to a particular spot on the cold, murky lake. The deepest point of the lake was 755 feet. The spot she had picked was probably its average depth being 600 feet. This is a good spot right here. I've seen the monsters surfacing here on a regular basis. The chieftain had never gone diving and today was not going to be her first day. We all got ourselves into dry suits except Argentum who naturally needed help getting into his custom made suit. Not surprisingly the champ put his cape over his dry suit. After getting our fins, weight belts and tanks we carefully checked each other's equipment and then we were ready to go. Brian sat on the gunwale of the boat with his back to the water. We have come to see for ourselves. He pulled down his face mask and rolled backwards into the very cold water. The champ and Argentum, both with tanks, were next. The champ checked Argentum's weight belt, his custom-made face mask, and the big light that was fixed onto the horse's head. Then he mounted Argentum. Hi-yo, Argentum! Cannonball! I told the chieftain not to go anywhere, and then I sat on the gunwale like Brian did and rolled back into the cold water. I went down, down, down into the darkness, able to see only with the light from my torch, which wasn't very far. I couldn't see my diving partners at all. I felt pressure on my lungs, but told myself to relax and not overexert myself in order to preserve my supply of oxygen-enriched air in my tank. To help prevent decompression sickness, we were all breathing almost pure oxygen. Continuing my descent, I saw many a brown trout. A big pike, about one metre long, curiously swam right up to me. When I got to the bottom, I checked my pressure gauge. Everything was fine. All of a sudden, I saw a big light coming towards me. It was the champion of reason on Argentum. In the history of diving, no one had ever seen a seahorse like that. 
paddling his four finned legs, Argentum carried the champ to me. The champ signalled for me to sit behind him on Argentum, and then we took off, with that big light showing the way. We came across Brian, and the champ signalled for him to hold on to Argentum's tail, and then off we went, with the champ checking his diving compass, until we came to a massive skeleton on the floor of the lake. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a complete skeleton, with a body about the size of a small whale and a neck about as long as a giraffe's. The champ circled it, checking it out very carefully with the big light on Argentum's head. He circled it three or four times, and then he checked the pressure gauge for Argentum's tank and signalled it was time to go back up. The following day, in an operation financed entirely by the chieftain, two professional scuba divers went down with an ROV and brought the skeleton up. Orchestrated leaks led to huge media presence. Photos of the gigantic skeleton went viral. The blogosphere was abuzz. Television news made it out to be the greatest discovery in the history of archaeology. Newspapers ran banner headlines like, Proof at last! The chieftain claimed rights to the skeleton and announced that she would display it to the public. The public showing was in the conference room of the Knockless Monster Inn and Suites. Catering by the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill provided various appetizers, bologna bruschetta, cheese and bologna balls, avocado and bologna dip, smoked bologna canapes and bean and bologna taquitos. People were wearing Loch Ness Monster t-shirts and or Loch Ness Monster caps and or one of the many other things for sale at the Loch Ness Monster gift shop. It was standing room only, even our Argentum had to stand. The precious skeleton, with its seven foot long neck propped up to show the creature's actual size, was cordoned off so that nobody could get too close to the skeleton of the creature that experts estimated to have weighed approximately three tons. Police were present. The chieftain, speaking from a podium directly in front of the skeleton, said that people could take all the photographs they wanted, and then she would, out of respect for the creature, give it a proper burial instead of letting scientists debase it with their tests. At that point, the champion of reason stood up and went to the podium. What do you think you're doing? Have a seat, Mayor McSham. I've got a few things to say. The chieftain looked a little flustered. It was an uneasy moment, not only for her, but for most of the other people present. Okay, but make it fast. The champ pulled the teacher's pointer out of his scabbard that his sword was in. The condition of this skeleton makes it clear that it wasn't in the lake for a very long time. But let's get down to business. I walked over to the side of the room so I could get a better look at the chieftain, who was clearing her throat impatiently. (coughs) There's a reason why this section of the skeleton resembles the neck and head of a giraffe. I got a good look at it on the floor of the lake, and I've had time to make some calls. Eighteen months ago, a 32-year-old giraffe at London Zoo was struck by lightning and died. Blunt trauma to the head of the giraffe, named Gerard, caused a basal skull fracture, specifically to the occipital bone, which is this bone here. And oh, look, there's a fracture here. That's just a coincidence. That creature there does not have the body of a giraffe. Right. Well, like my friend Questionable Adam says, you've got to dig deeper. After the necropsy, Gerard's neck was cut off here, at the top of the thoracic vertebrae. You could have heard a pin drop. After Gerard's head and neck skeletonized, it was ready to be attached to the body of something that might resemble the body of a large marine reptile. Something like, well, like a beluga whale. The chieftain appeared very shaken. I've heard enough of this nonsense. This showing is over. Everybody out! But the police, already given the lowdown and determined to let the champ continue, ordered everyone to stay put and continue to listen to the champion of reason. Eight months ago, 
A 29-year-old, 16-foot-long male beluga whale died from heart disease at Vancouver Aquarium. A few months before dying, the beluga whale, named Larry, was rammed by a dolphin, resulting in two cracked ribs on its left rib cage. And oh, look, there are two cracked ribs right here. Do you see where I'm going with this? In addition to being able to hear a pin drop, you could now have heard a discreet woman break wind. Larry's head was cut off at the bottom of the cervical vertebrae. After Larry's body skeletonized, the cervical vertebrae of Gerard was fused to the thoracic vertebrae of Larry. See this piece right here? It's steel, not bone. The welder cleverly used a ball and joint socket, like giraffes have in their cervical vertebrae. You can't prove that. I think we can. During the necropsies, tissue samples were taken as a matter of course from both Gerard and Larry. So we'll be able to compare them to DNA taken from the bones of these two distinct skeletons. That skeleton is mine. I'm not letting anybody touch it. You don't have a choice. These two skeletons were acquired with bribes and sent to a warehouse right here in Inverdeen. The assistant pathologist at Vancouver Aquarium has already confessed, and the pathologist at London Zoo has been taken into custody for questioning. Do I need to say who owns the warehouse that these skeletons were sent to? The chieftain looked as though she was going to have a brain aneurysm. The acquisition of Gerard's skeleton is in a grey area, but the acquisition of Larry's skeleton amounts to international trafficking, and that's a much more serious crime. We're talking jail time. The chieftain was shaking. It's no wonder that you took us to that particular place on the lake. That's where you dropped the fused skeleton, which naturally sank to the bottom like a stone. And it's no wonder that you didn't want it to be tested, but it will be tested. And in addition to DNA, a forensic anthropologist will determine the ages of these two distinct skeletons. The chieftain pointed at Kendrick, the middle-aged, downtrodden busser at the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill. You, Kendrick, you did it. But I will see that you are financially rewarded. Kendrick, don't take the rap for her. She doesn't care about you. Do the right thing. Kendrick looked down, sheepishly. I did the welding, and I helped her drop the skeleton into the loch. She said that she would fire me if I didn't do it, or if I ever said anything about it. I'm sorry. I'm sure you are, Kendrick, which is more than I can say for her. The police marched straight up to the chieftain. Mathena McSham, you are under arrest. The chieftain was handcuffed and led away, screaming about what she did to bring tourism to Inverdeen and revenue for the village and its residents. I did it for my community. After the chieftain was out of earshot, a woman seated up front blurted out to the champion of reason, Well, I just want you to know that this doesn't prove that Nessie doesn't exist. The champ took a folded piece of paper out of his pocket and told the woman to open it and read it aloud. Well, it says, this doesn't prove that Nessie doesn't exist. Hey, that's exactly what I just said. Wow, you must be psychic. No, I'm not psychic. I just figured that somebody would say something like that. But I want you to know that your reasoning is invalid. You don't start with a belief and then challenge someone to disprove it. You start by searching for facts and then basing your beliefs on what is reasonable. That's science. The champ then headed for the door. Coming alongside Kendrick, he undid his cape, and then he threw his cape to the meek fellow. This is for you, Kendrick. Wow, thanks, champion of reason. From this day forward, don't let anybody talk down to you. I won't. Brian and I hooked up with the champ outside at the conference room. I said, let's go get some beers and something to eat. Okay, but let's not go to the Loch Ness Monster Pub and Grill. In fact... Let's get out of Inverdeen. Yep, we've been fed enough baloney here. <laughs>